Please remain standing as you're able for the reading of God's word. Morning is from Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. The text will be on the screen as I read. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the, ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. Uh, as we always do, uh, kids are dismissed for Children's Church. And a reminder to parents, you can pick them up after benediction because they'll be practicing some songs they're going to sing next week. And I believe even the older kids, after the message, you can head down and, and practice with them uh, as well. Uh, as you heard, we are uh, in a message with the book of Haggai. We've been going through the whole book. There's only two chapters. Uh, and the, the way it's structured is the whole book has four different messages in it, which is perfect for Advent, four Sundays of the season of Advent. And so we are in the third of four messages that are in the book of Haggai. And uh, next week, uh, the last Sunday of Advent, we'll wrap up this book of the Bible, which leads probably to a question that some of you might have, what we're going to do, what are we going to do after uh, this series. And we have a standalone message coming up on New Year's Day. Then after that, uh, we switched to a new sermon series. And one of the things that I was trying to figure out uh, is what to preach on next. Sometimes we switch from Old and New Testament. So this is the Old Testament. We can go back to the New Testament, do topical series as well, different theological themes. There's a bunch of things. So I went on a forum that's in Church Center uh, that our covenant members are part of. There's a covenant members only forum uh, on that app, and I just asked the question, what series would you like to see? And there were a lot of different really good ideas that were unique, and there was one clear consensus which was just kind of messed up. The consensus is, for those of you that weren't on this discussion board, the consensus from your covenant members was the book of Revelation. Uh, I have to pray about that. Um, that's, that's, some, that's some legit heavy lifting, but this is, this is what I'm thinking, all right? This is what I'm doing right now. 
Uh, after that standalone message in, on New Year's Day, I'm going to do a five-week sermon series on uh, Trinity's five practices. Sometimes you see them right out there on the sign when you come into the sanctuary, the five practices of Trinity that, that kind of form us as we walk along one, with one another on this mission with Christ. So I want to do that because I know there's a lot of folks that are relatively new to Trinity. In the last couple of years, it would be a good review of what this church is all about and how these practices form us. In addition, that will give me a little bit of time because that's kind of review for me, and for some of you it's going to be new. It's a little bit of a lighter message or a lighter series to prepare potentially for Revelation. I'm working at guys. I'm looking at the weeks and thinking about it, but, but it's Revelation. You know what I mean? So, like... I'm open to it, um, I'm considering it, maybe give me a little bit more encouragement if this is really what you all want to do, is just go, go to the end times. I mean, that's what I was thinking. I mean, it's just like, don't you kind of feel like you've been living in the end times the last couple of years and now you want to do a sermon series about it? So I'm, I'm open to it, guys, but just kind of like, let's get in dialogue here a little bit before I commit, um, and we'll see, we'll see what happens uh, with that. Maybe Jesus will come back and I don't have to decide. Um, <laughs> That's what I'm kind of, kind of praying for at the moment, right? Anyway, we're in Haggai right now. Uh, that's some of the things that are potentially around the corner. Let's go ahead and pray before we dive into this third message. Let's pray. Lord, I love this gathering. I love that you fill spaces like this every Sunday with your people that have been bought with the precious blood of Christ that the power of the resurrection is living in them, that you've poured your spirit out on them, that they've experienced your grace and your forgiveness, your redemption. And that's why they're here, Lord, because your word has changed them, has transformed them, and continues to form them into the, the people that you want them to be. So use now this message from Haggai uh, to do the same that your word has always done in our lives, to change us, to shape us, to make us more and more like the the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Many times, projects that seem to be very straightforward end up being just a complete mess. And this point seems to be true of life in general, a bunch of different life circumstances, but it's especially true if you're doing any type of do-it-yourself project at home, that something that seems to be really straightforward, it's going to take one trip to Menards in 30 minutes, turns out to be just an absolute train wreck. And this is something that uh, has recently happened to me with a house project I was taking on. As many of you know, uh, the previous owner of the house that we are in right now converted the apartment in, uh, converted the third floor rather into an apartment, and we run an Airbnb uh, out of that. Um, for those of you who don't know, my last name is Lair, so we call it the Lair B&B. Huh? Anyone? No? I am so impressed by that. What's, 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 yeah, thank you, thank you. I, ha there's, I have a testimony back there. So it's the Lair B&B. And once in a while, things come up. And in this particular instance, one of the previous guests let me know that the shower head was leaking. So I looked into it, and it seemed that uh, uh, I troubleshooted a bunch of things and tried to figure out if it was a complicated thing going on, if it was a simple thing going on. And after my deep dive into, into the interwebs and YouTube, it seemed like the problem was pretty straightforward. There's this faucet cartridge that's in the uh, kind of single-handle um, shower handle that needed to be replaced, and according to YouTube, this is something that pretty much anybody in this pew, including myself in this, in this room, could, could do. But I have DIY PTSD. 
I have so many situations where this type of thing, which looks so straightforward, just, just giant curveball, is thrown at me. And so then I'm like, well, I have 24 hours before the next guests come. Uh, just in case this isn't as straightforward as I think it is, I better get a plumber over here. And unfortunately, because it was such short notice, I had to pay him overtime, but he came nonetheless. Because uh, I've never done this before, and even though it seemed very straightforward, I was, I was having my doubts. So he comes over, and uh, I have all the parts ready for him. And sure enough, this project was really that straightforward. It probably takes him close to like 10 minutes to replace this cartridge. He has this special tool that you can just get from Ace. He pulls the old one out, puts the new one in, assembles uh, the handle back together, and it was ready to go within 10 minutes. And I was just really discouraged at this point. I was just like, man, I could have totally done this myself. Could have saved like 100 bucks or whatever uh, that it cost this point uh, to be able to do it myself. But then the curveball came. I went back to the shutoff valve uh, that was in the apartment, and there's just, just this little kind of hole that's cut into the wall where the shutoff valve, you kind of put, take it off this little door, you stick your hand in to turn off the, the water, and I was going back in to turn it back on. And once I did that, nothing in the apartment worked. None of the water came back on. There wasn't a faucet, a shower head, no water in the entire apartment was coming back on. And I'm just like, what is going on? And this, of course, is now way beyond my expertise or yeah, the expertise of YouTube. And so I'm fortunate the plumber's here. He can figure it out, and he troubleshoots it right away. He's like, well, it looks like the shutoff valve broke in the off position. Uh, and here's the thing, so like for him, simple thing, right? But this is what it entails. You have to cut the pipe in two different parts to put a new valve in, but the hole to access it is about that big, right? It's just super small. So this project now turns into something much, much bigger. I have to go downstairs, get a crowbar, a hammer, and a skill saw because we have to cut a hole into the wall to access the piping to be able to replace this. And so that's what ends up happening. I, and these are kind of, the, the walls are, are covered with knotty pine. It kind of looks like a sauna up there. Uh, so I have to go there, and there's just like saw dust and nails and, and lumber flying everywhere as we're trying to get into the wall. And I finally open it up, and he's able to replace it. And sure enough, once he gets the new valve in there, the water opens back up, and we're, we're good to go. And so this is a situation that went from, man, I can't believe I hired this plumber. I could have totally done this by myself to, wow, this thing just went off the rails, and I don't know what I would have done. I would have totally messed up this project, would have made it worse if this plumber was not here. And this story sets up just this general life experience where things are going, going well, things are going according to the plan, and, and then you get a giant curveball. And that's exactly how this third message in Haggai feels. They have a building project that they're doing. Everything's starting to go according to plan. It's starting to, to unfold the way it ought to be. And then Haggai has a message for the people that, that serves as a giant curveball that warns them that this project can easily go off the rails. And this is what you need to know. It's a message to remind them that they need help in order to complete this project and to be warned about things that can make it go off the rails. So let's get into this message about Haggai telling his people to revive their commitment to this project. Let's look at verses 10 through 11, how it's set up. On the 24th day of the ninth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, 
And this is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. As I mentioned, this is the third of four messages, and this is a specific date. It's December 18th of 520 B.C. That's when this message was given. The context, again, if you're just tuning in for the first time, God's people are returning from exile back to their land, back to an area that had been devastated by the Babylonians, and they're in a rebuilding effort, specifically rebuilding the temple, It was more than just rebuilding a building, it was rebuilding their faith. It was rebuilding the very presence of God and establishing his glory once again among the land and among the people. That's what was going on. It was more than a temple project. It was a rebuilding of God's people and their faith because their sin had led them into exile. The first message that took place on September 21st aimed at reviving the priorities of God's people. The second message... Uh, that we considered last week took place on October 17th, and that aimed at reviving the expectations of God's people. And now he's trying to revive their commitment to this task to remind them of what the curveball could be that could derail the whole project. All right? But before I get into the message itself, because he sets up this theological debate about the law, in order for me to even read those verses and questions, I have to give you a framework to uh, be able to understand even what the questions are getting at. So, uh, warning here, this is some heavy theological lifting that we're about to do. So I don't know what you need to do, if you need to do a quick stretch or whatever to get ready for some uh, heavy theology, but that's what we're going to have to do because if you don't get this part of the message, you won't get the questions and you especially will not get the conclusion, all right? So get yourself psyched up a little bit here. So there's two big things to know Uh, about uh, the theological framework, especially of the Old Testament, to appreciate what these verses are getting at. The first thing is this, the word consecrated. What does consecrated mean? You need to know what that that word means and the theology behind it to understand the questions. Another word for consecrated is holy or holiness, which means at its basic level that something is set apart. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, something can be intrinsically holy or consecrated or extrinsically consecrated as well. God is intrinsically holy, meaning that his nature is set apart because of who he is. God is infinitely pure, which means he is completely separate from sin, or he is omnipotent, meaning that he's completely separated from weakness and limitations. But again, something can be holy or consecrated because it's extrinsically consecrated. And in this sense, it's because someone or something is set apart for a sacred purpose. An object can be set apart, like a temple for a sacred purpose, a day of the week, like the Sabbath, or a people can be set apart and be consecrated or be considered holy. And it's in the second sense that the questions are getting at, that something is consecrated, okay? So that's one part. Here's another part of the framework. The questions Haggai is about to ask to these religious authorities concerns customs and understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, and the questions are drawing out some implications about meat that has been sacrificed, which is holy or consecrated, as well as exposure to a dead body, which is unholy and defiled. And so it's important to note what's behind that, because I know for many of you, maybe that's kind of a confusing thing. What's with all the laws about being clean and unclean? defiled and consecrated, like what's going on there? It might, it's a very confusing part of the Old Testament if you ever read the Old Testament. So here's what's going on. This is a ritualistic framework in the Old Testament, and it's not about ethics. 
That's not to say that ethics isn't something that can be holy. Yeah, ethics and our behavior can be holy and set apart, but that's not what the framework uh, is, is getting at in these verses. It's about religious rituals and customs in the Old Testament that communicate a deep theological meaning. So in the Old Testament, someone's defiled, that does not mean they're immoral, but it does symbolize it. In the Old Testament, for example, exposure to things are either pulling one towards holiness or pulling one towards uh, being unholy or defiled. It's either pulling people towards life or pulling people towards death. It's either pulling you towards light or pulling you towards darkness. And all the rituals and customs of the Old Testament is communicating that that's what's happening in life. You're either being pulled to one or the other. So some of the examples in the Old Testament includes like bleeding. There's all these Old Testament laws about blood and losing blood and how it makes you unclean and defiled. Well, why? Why is that? Well, it's pointing to a deeper theological reality. It's not that it's immoral. It's that it's symbolizing the loss of blood is like the loss of life. And so, for, therefore, to be losing your blood means you're losing your life. Or leprosy or skin disease, that's another example. It symbolizes the breaking down of our body that's moving towards death until, instead of life. Or exposure to a dead body. It is the direct exposure to death that is defiling you. So again, this is not a morality point. It's a deep theological point that's being baked into the rituals and customs of the Old Testament people of God. So really, anything that comes out of the body or makes the body disfigured in some ways unclean and makes somebody defiled. And this points beyond the symbols to the ultimate reality of what really causes us to drift away from the Lord. Sin is what really causes us to lose our life and to rebel against the Lord. And it symbolizes moving away from holiness and moving away from the giver of life and closer to death. So that's the framework that's going on there, okay? So if you were following those two things, this is what consecrated means and this is the framework, this should set up a little bit better uh, what is going on behind these questions that Haggai is about to ask. So let's look at the first one. Verse 12. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some new, some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. So question one is asking, can a holy or consecrated object, in this case it's meat from a holy sacrifice animal, come in contact indirectly with something and make it holy? Now, this seems like an odd question, but in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, if something has direct contact with something that's holy or consecrated, then that object becomes consecrated and holy as well. An example in the Old Testament is the sprinkling of blood from a sacrifice or anointing, sacred anointing oil can touch the clothes of a priest, and then those clothes becomes consecrated as well. But that's not quite what the question is. It's more of indirect contact. So the consecrated item touches a fold or a piece of clothing, and then that clothing that might not be consecrated touches something else. In this situation, some bread, stew, wine, or other food. And so the question is, is does that make that third object in that line of events, does it make that third object through indirect uh, uh, exposure to something consecrated, does that make it holy? The religious authorities answer, no, it doesn't. Indirect contact 
with a consecrated item does not make an object holy. Okay? That's the first question. Question number two, verse 13. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? The priests replied, yes, it becomes defiled. So similar question, but this is about defiled or unholy objects rather than sacred ones. In this question, a dead body, which is a defiled object, comes in contact with a person, and so now this person is defiled, and what if that person now touches this list of food? Well, the priests say in that situation, through indirect exposure to something that's unholy, that that object, even though it's indirect, can become unholy or defiled as well. So let's review. This is what's going on here. The ruling from these religious authorities in this little theological uh, discussion. A holy object cannot indirectly make something holy. However, a defiled or unholy object can indirectly make something defiled. That's what they set up here. In other words, and this is the point that uh, Haggai is starting to set up through this Q&A session, it's easier to make something defiled or unholy than it is to make it sacred and holy. That's the point that was established between these Q&A back and forth. And when I got that point, I actually immediately thought that there's some general senses that this is kind of true when I think about, like, keeping your house clean. Is it easier to keep your house clean or to keep it messy? And I would say cleanliness is holiness and messiness is unholiness in this situation. And there's kind of a general sense that, that there's other things that are kind of like this. That it's easier to go towards the darkness. It's easier toward, to... to mess things up and make things come apart than it is to put it back together to make it holy, to make it sacred. And that's, that's a kind of a general rule that Haggai wants to make out of this Q&A session. So what's the point that he wants to make from that? In verse, in verse 14, this is what he says are the implications of his Q&A. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. So this is a shocking point that he's starting to make because the people have already revived their priorities to build the temple and their faith back. They've readjusted and revived their expectations and put them in the proper order. So this is going on. They are in the process of rebuilding the temple, but then Haggai comes along and throws this giant curveball into the project and says, do you know what? You are defiled people, and, you, and you, everything you touch and everything you do just messes everything up. And, and, he, and he just raises this question, most likely in the people that are listening to this, and it raises this question. Can a people who have been so impure and so defiled accomplish this holy task of rebuilding the sacred temple? Can they even do it? Do they even have the power to be able to do this? Won't they just infect everyone and everything again by their unholiness? After all, it's worth noting that participating in sacred work does not make somebody holy. That's the stuff, that's the framework, and the point that Haggai is starting to make. So this kind of raises the question, so, so now what? If that's true, like, what, what can we do? Like, what, how can we get out of this? Like, what, what's our response to this? And that's what Haggai gets into in the next uh, several verses. Look at verses 15 through 17. Haggai says, Now give, give careful attention to this from, from this day on. 
Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat and to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So these verses are recalling something we already talked about in the first message of Haggai, and I want to revisit that here a little bit. The Lord is asking his people again to consider their lives in light of their failure to rebuild the temple. So when they went back to uh, the promised land, they did not immediately invest into rebuilding their faith and rebuilding their temple. They, they were distracted by other things, but they were still working hard on other things. And God is reminding them that through that hard work to produce all these things, they weren't actually getting much of a return. That's what the, all that language about you went to get this much from the stash of things you tried to produce, but you only got uh, a lot less than that back. That's what that language is getting at. It's saying that they found that all this work they were putting into these projects and there wasn't much to show from it. All this work and effort and this toil and they don't seem to be ever getting ahead. So what's going on here in this framework? Well, verse 17 says that God is the one that struck their works and frustrated their work. And the work was struck with this dry, harsh heat, excessive moisture, and hail like a plague in Egypt. And the description here gives that feeling that sometimes happens in life that it's, if it's not one thing, it's another thing. That's why it's just if it's not dryness, it's, 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 it's wet. That's just messing up the pro produce, messing up my work. I, I, I overcome this thing and then something else comes and just derails my work and everything is frustrated. Everything is toil. I'm working so hard. I'm never getting ahead. That's what's going on. That's what's being described here. And this is a, attached to God being actively doing this because he's disciplining his people to get their attention because they are so distracted from what's central in their life, the faith that they ought to have in him, and they're so caught up in other things and their sin and their busyness that they're neglecting the God who is there that loves them. So in the covenant, and this is where the framework is coming from, uh, in the covenant, you got to remember that God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. He makes a commitment to them and calls them to a new way of life. And the, the, the terms of that commitment is if they follow his ways they'll be blessed and if they disobey God then they will be cursed and this language is getting at the curse part of it as I reminded you before this isn't some type of vending machine theology that you kind of put the coin of work in and you get blessing and if you neglect the covenant then you get cursed it's more relational than that God saved his people by his grace forgave their sins and established this relationship with them based on his unconditional love. And this covenant is with the people who are already his people. They're not trying to do these things to get more of God. They already have all of God. And he is eternally committed to them. So the purpose of these curses is a form of discipline from a loving father that try to shake them out of their complacency and their distraction so that God can be in the center of their life once again and they can enjoy his love and glory forever and ever and ever. These are terms of the covenant that just says, God says, I will not let you abandon me. I will go after you. I will get your attention. I'm going to do what it takes to bring you back to me. That's what's being uh, talked about here and that's what Haggai is reminding them about. 
And then verse 17 says, well, he did all these things, but did they return to him? Verse 17 says, yet you did not return to me. So let's keep going. Verses 18 through 19, which brings us to the end of the passage. He says, this, from this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the, the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. And then he ends with this. From this day on, I will bless you. Notice the phrase, give careful thought, and from this day on, it keeps repeating in this message. God wants his people to recall these things so that they can make a commitment in the days ahead. In the days ahead. With God's help through Haggai, for these people, he wants to revive their priorities and their expectations, and they're at a turning point right here where they've done those things, but there's more to it than that. They have been a rebellious people who have made a mess of their faith. They have been a people who are defiled and unclean. And to ask those questions that I asked previously, are they going to be this impure, unholy, defiled people? Are they even fit to accomplish this holy task of rebuilding the sacred temple? Won't they just infect everything and everyone again? Won't they just ruin everything? And so it's at this turning point right, that you're asking the questions, how can things even be different this time? And the good news, because at this point, if you're following me, this sounds just like a lousy, hopeless situation, which is exactly where the message of Haggai wants you to be. Have you ever felt that way in your life and in your faith? That you're just at a point in your life where you're just like, I feel so defiled, so unholy. Everything I touch seems to be falling apart. Like, what good I can do? Like, how can I even get out of this? Where's the good news? But it is there in that last phrase. The message ends with this. From this day on, I will bless you. Even though this is true of you, you make a mess of things, you, you tend to be defiled, unholy, and you make other things defiled and unholy around you, he doesn't end with, I'm done. He ends with, from this day on, I will bless you. In other words, he says, I am committed to you regardless. Because of his unconditional love and God's unconditional love, he still wants to bless them and stay with them. Even though they were rebellious, defiled, and uncommitted, God is still pursuing them. He still wants to set them apart, and he wants them to be his faithful people. The New Testament, in light of the gospel, puts the same principle this way. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still unholy, defiled, messing things up, God is so committed to his people that he laid down his life for an unholy people so that we may be made new, restored again. That's what he's setting up here in the Old Testament book of Haggai. So this is the word from God through Haggai to his people. Revive your commitment to rebuild this temple and rebuild your faith because God is committed to you. You can stay committed because I am with you. I am committed to you. And commit to God's purposes not because this work is going to make you holy, but because a holy God is committed to you to set you apart and he's not going to leave and forsake you. In fact, he's going to do what it takes to restore an unholy people to himself. 
So let me conclude by tying this together in the New Testament. It is easier, as Haggai says, to defile the things around us more than it is to make things holy. Yet here is what we find out when we, we discover Jesus. It is impossible for Jesus to make anyone or anything defiled. Did you know that? It's impossible for Jesus to make anyone or anything unholy or defiled. It's easy for us to do it. It's impossible for Jesus to do it. Everything that he encounters and touches and pours his life out for becomes holy and sacred and restored, loved and forgiven. That's what an encounter with Jesus looks like. Or let me ask it as a, a question that Haggai might ask the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if someone who is unclean and defiled touches the cloak of Jesus? What if something like that happens? Does that person become clean or consecrated? Not touching Jesus, but just his cloak. If you just touch the cloak of Jesus, what happens? The New Testament answers the question, but let's look at a story. I want to set up this story from the Gospel of Luke chapter 8, and this is a story about Jesus encountering an unclean woman and also a dying girl. Here's the situation. A religious leader comes to Jesus because his only daughter, who's 12 years old, is dying. So as Jesus went to help, he also encounters someone else along the way. A woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years also approached him. She had spent, up until this point, all of her resources and her entire life trying to resolve this, going to physician after physician and just, just emptying her bank account to be able to be restored, and nobody could help her. And remember the framework that I had you do the heavy lifting for. Because she is a bleeding, it doesn't mean that she's immoral, but ritualistically and in their customs, what that meant for her is that she couldn't gather for worship anymore. She couldn't enjoy fellowship in her religious community because she was defiled and she was unclean until this was resolved. And so she goes and finally says, I'm going to encounter Jesus. Nobody else can help, but I hear about this Jesus and everything he touches and everything he encounters seems to bring life and restoration. But then she finds Jesus, right? And this blood that's symbolizing, this loss of blood symbolizing the loss of life and everything she's encountering because of that, she goes to Jesus now as her only hope. And I never noticed this before until I read Haggai in this story, but do you remember what happens? How she is healed? Let me show you. Luke 8.44 says this. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his, you see it? Cloak touched the edge of his, didn't touch Jesus, touched the edge of his cloak. And what happened? Immediately, the bleeding stopped. She didn't touch Jesus, but his clothes he was wearing, and she was healed. The bleeding stopped, and she was restored to fellowship and restored to worship. But the story continues with now somebody coming back and reporting to the religious leader and Jesus who's walking that the daughter had died. There's no use to continuing the journey to help anymore. But if you remember the story, Jesus went anyway, and he passes a crowd who is mourning because of her death, and he went up to the room where the dead body was laying with a couple of disciples. And then Luke 8, 4, uh, 54 says this, He took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, 
And at once she stood up, and then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. See, Jesus not only restores a defiled people, but pulls them out of death. What ultimately this framework and these customs were always pointing to, and that is this constant pull from death and unholiness and sin to, to pull us towards death and away from life, but that constant struggle that we all encounter, that Jesus comes into a life, and says, that's enough. You are restored, you are made holy, you are consecrated, and even if death pulls you down, I will pull you out of that grave and raise you from the dead. That's what happens when we encounter Jesus. And Jesus not only restores defiled sinners, but calls us to commit to his mission, and he reminds us that this is a work that we are not called to do by ourselves. If that was the case, the project will go off the rails and we will encounter curveball after curveball after curveball. But remember what Jesus said. Remember the promise he gave us when he called us in the Great Commission to his mission. He says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And then he says this, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So brothers and sisters, revive your commitment to this mission. Not because you're perfect, not because this work is somehow going to make you holy, but because Jesus has already restored you to be a holy and sacred people because you have encountered his touch his spirit, his presence, and the power that raises the dead is with you. And he calls you to commit to this mission, reminding you that you can commit to this mission, not because of your strength, but because I am with you always, even to the end of the age.